What's up, guys? Coach Jack here. Welcome to Operation Grip Box podcast, teaching you to live at high performance. This podcast is sponsored by Grit Box, delivering ultimate human performance to you in a convenient monthly box. That's exciting. That's good. And 10% of all revenue goes to help inner city athletes perform and live at high performance. Starting with my Castlemont guys. Appreciate you. And welcome to the Operation Gritbox podcast. Excited and honored to have Dr. Ryan Lowry, president of the Applied Performance Institute, CEO, founder of Ketogenic.com. Mr. Lowry, how are you today? Great, Coach. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be on here. And what does a day-to-day look like for you at this time? Ryan? Ben, you know, it's always fun because it's always changing. But I mean, I get up, start my day with gratitude. I mean, I think that's a huge piece. Just I'm a big proponent of positivity and starting the day on the right foot. And if you start the day the right way, you win it no matter what else happens the rest of the day. So really focused on a solid morning routine and then coming to the office and really uh, get to work with the team. We have an incredible team here that pumps out just a ton of content. It's something we're big advocates of. How do we really take complex topics? and educate the world on them and that's something that we're doing here day to day and then try and squeeze in a workout here and there but uh, it's just fun man. it's a fun ride and love every single day because it's always unique yeah I believe you're vouching right there in terms of your believer in in-depth content and simplifying it just because I have a copy of your book I purchased last year when it first came out and very detailed but at the same time easy to read easy to apply and then what does your gratitude practice look like for you yeah so I start my day the first thing I do is get out of bed is I hit my five-minute journal so it's a journal where three things I'm grateful for three things I'm looking forward to today and then that's an I am statement and for me it really puts things to perspective and I think that's a big proponent for anyone who's looking to start the day right is if you wake up and you realize how grateful you are to have a bed to sleep on you can't really have a bad day because you're grateful for something that a lot of people in the world don't have and it really gets your mind thinking in the right way of like you know what I woke up today that's a win I woke up and I have a bed and a roof over my head like that's a win so it's just really putting your mind in a good space to start the day love it and I dig the part of You're saying, hey, if I do this right, then it's hard to have a bad day. And just personal, I do meditation focus training at the start of my day. And then when that starts to slip with me, what kind of brings me back is like, this is the most important meeting I'm going to have all day. And doing that kind of recognizes, gets me back on track and and gets me rolling and turns into something that's really important, really beneficial. Okay, so you talk about gratitude. And let's go back to your kind of origin superhero story. Gratitude and optimism were something some of your role models taught to you growing up. Can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and just kind of share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a small town, Butler, New Jersey, with great family, friends. It was one of those small towns that you'd see on like Friday Night Lights, right? Everything shut down for Friday for the football games, like nothing else mattered. Uh, And it was great and had a great time. And played sports throughout my entire life. Played football, played basketball, played baseball. Eventually went on to play baseball in college. But um, it was just an amazing time. And when I was young, I had a very close-knit family. And unfortunately, when I was in middle school, uh, unexpectedly, my grandmother passed. And that was a big 
turning point in my life because my family was, she was like the rock, the centerfold of my family. And to just lose her unexpectedly was kind of, it shook things up. And from that moment on, I really took a, a responsibility of, you know, how do I not only hold my family together, but how do I make sure other people don't experience the same pain uh, that I felt? Because I was so frustrated and angry that, like, I didn't understand, right? I was young. It was unexpected. Her health, like, it was due to her health complications. And I'm like, why didn't someone tell her better? Why didn't someone, like, help her with her nutrition or help her with exercise or help her in any of these regards? And I just felt like if failed like the system failed her and so I said you know what I can spend the rest of my life being mad and angry sit on the sidelines and complain about it or I can actually do something and be part of the change and so fortunately I decided to do the latter and said you know what I'm going to go to school for this I'm going to go learn from some of the best people and some of the best mentors I can in the world and then how do I take that information and share it with as many people as humanly possible to make sure that if it just affects one person and that one person could be a grandmother that now has 10 more years with their kid or their grandson, that to me is a life win. And so that's kind of how I approach it is like, I've just been so blessed to have so many mentors around me my entire life and learn from greatest people in the world. And my goal is how do I effectively go out every day and change one person's life? And that is just the ultimate source of fulfillment for me. That's inspiring. And most middle schoolers do not have skill set to be able to channel that energy and all that emotion into a directive to do what, what you did. What kind of experiences you had and support system that you had that, that you feel got you to that moment where when your grandma passed, it wasn't energy and emotion going sideways. You were kind of directed to put you on mission. You know, I think a lot of it, and she would love to hear this, and I tell her this all the time, because she's like my world right now, is a lot of it was my mom. And so she was like, when even when everything happened, she became kind of the new rock of the family. And she's one of those people who's had a lot of things, a lot of complications, a lot of things go wrong in her life, yet she wakes up every day with a smile and helps put smiles on other people's faces. And I kind of sat back and I watched, and I think that's important for people who are listening to this that are parents or older brothers or sisters, like, believe it or not, your actions, even though they might not see it, someone's watching. And so, like, I watched her day after day battle Crohn's, right? She was one of those people who was eating 500 calories a day. And whether people still talk about, all oh, this calories in, calories out thing, like, she was eating 500 calories a day and not losing weight and always going to the bathroom and, and always, like, could be the one person who would be the most mad at the world of, I can't control what's going on in my body and I'm eating nothing. And she still had a smile on her face. She still woke up, made us food and, and still kept the family together and always wanted to do stuff with everyone and for me that resonated to me and I said you know what the person who could be so mad and frustrated if she can have a smile and she can really continue having this positive demeanor then why the hell can't I and that's really one of the people that I took after and still admire today and then you say it was like Friday Night Lights for your small town and when I think of the Northeast it seems more basketball oriented than football but it sounds like for your town it was maybe sports centric overall but football was a big deal. 
really was. It wasn't anything like Texas high school football. It definitely wasn't that big. But uh, in our small town, football was a sport. And so it was like the town shut down on, on Friday night when we played. It was everyone in the town was there. Every, when you walked into a store, everyone knew you. They didn't call me Ryan. They called me 14. They're like, hey, 14, what's up? And like, and it was a really cool environment to some capacity when you have that, that type of support system. And it was good for me to kind of have that while I was younger before I branched out and then completely changed and took off on my own and went to Tampa. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about your athletic career and then how you ended up in Tampa? Yeah. So originally my plan was I had a scholarship to go play baseball at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. And I had a ride. I was one of the only few that was accepted into a doctor of physical therapy program at Quinnipiac. It was a five-year DPT program and I was like set on it. And then uh, we had some financial struggles. My dad lost his job. And the more, it wasn't a full scholarship. The more and more I thought about it, I'm like, you know what? Like if I go to Connecticut, that's just 30 minutes or an hour away. It's a drive away from my parents, my friends. You know, like if I really want to radically change my life, why don't I throw myself in a really uncomfortable situation? So, like a month before, like I think it was actually two months before college started, I got with my athletic director and I was like, you know what? Like, are there any other options? And he made a call to the head baseball coach of University of Tampa and he pulled some strings and got me in. Crazy story, but he finally got me in and I packed up my bags, didn't even visit the school. I looked at it online and I was like you know what I'm gonna roll the dice here and my parents and I drove down two months later after I a couple months after I finished high school and we went and it was one of the best decisions I ever made in my entire life and it's a really important piece that I don't think I would be anywhere near I'd be my life would be completely different had I not made that decision and Tampa has at least when you were there a very successful baseball program is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they're they're always top ranked. So they're Division Two, and when we were there, well, when I was there for most of my time, we were always ranked in the top three. And I was fortunate enough that my junior year, we actually won the national championship. And that was an amazing experience going through that with a lot of my teammates, and several of them got drafted and are still playing. Uh, but it was just an amazing experience because we were always highly competitive, uh, traveling all the time. But it was just something that I've always wanted to do for my entire life. And it was one of those things you check off and you go, you know what, that's, that's one of the things I wanted to do. And it was an amazing experience. And looking back now in terms of the championship culture that was there, what are a couple things that stood out that you think maybe separated that baseball program from the hundreds of other Division II baseball programs across the country? Oh, undoubtedly, the first and foremost would be the coaching. Uh, so our coach was one of the best in the world, I think. I think. I mean, he could walk into any MLB team right now, and they'd probably be happy to take him, Coach Urso. And he really had a tight ship, a really good system of putting people in the right place in order to um, maximize it. A lot of it was setting the expectation up front. Like, the expectation for us going into every game was – we should win by a minimum of five runs. Like, there's no reason why we shouldn't because we he was able to draft and, and pick up some of the best pitchers from across the country. And then our the way he put together our lineup was we should be scoring every inning. So if we played defense and we scored, we should be winning every single game and going in with that expectation, but still being grounded to a sense where you're not cocky. Because sometimes you got you, you get smacked back into reality and you're like, whoa, we, we really need to uh, pick it back up. But it was that level of expectation 
passion and level of commitment, not only from coaching staff, but to each other, that we had a responsibility to always play at our best and held each other accountable, that I think really made the world of a difference. And then how did your baseball career finish up and where you were like, okay, it's time for me to move on to next step in my life slash professional journey? Yeah, so after we won the national championship, it was one of the most challenging decisions I've ever made in my life was I said, you know what, I think it's time, right? I think it's time to hang them up because my passion doesn't lie in trying to pursue this professionally. Like I saw a lot of my teammates, that was their passion. I saw the drive, the energy, the effort that they put into that. That wasn't where my passion lied. And so I said, you know what, I did what I wanted to do in this realm. My passion now lies in research. And I was fortunate enough that when I was a freshman, I met Dr. Jacob Wilson, who's now my business partner, and he mentored me. And he kind of introduced me to this concept of you can do research. Here's let's do some research on sports and let's do research on nutrition and exercise and supplementation. And I had been doing that even while I was playing baseball. I got involved very early on doing research. And so I said, you know what? Now it's time for me to go all in on this. This is my passion and this is where I want to take the rest of my life. And so my senior years when I fully committed and said, you know what? Now I'm going to focus on this research component. And uh, that paid off, I guess, extremely well to go all in and pursue that passion. And just from viewing you guys afar and watching your videos, and he was the co-author of the Ketogenic Bible you guys wrote, co-head of the API Applied Performance Institute, seems like you guys have very good synergy. And I just want to ask you just a little bit about the importance of business partner or just someone that SEAL teams, they call it a swim buddy, but just how you and him kind of feed off each other and support each other on your mission in terms of uh, developing human performance. I'd love to hear your take on that. Well, that's a really great question. I've never gotten asked that. But I look at Jacob's like a brother to me. It took a long time for uh, it didn't. It actually didn't take a long time for that relationship to develop. Is he took a chance on me when I was a freshman, and I'm one of those people that's extremely loyal. And he reached out, stuck his neck out for me multiple times, and said, "I'm going to take a chance on this kid." And so I've been loyal to him ever since. And I think that concept of SEAL team is so important, whether you're in business or any type of relationship that you're in, in a sense that we have such a good relationship now. Like I can predict what he's thinking. He can predict what I'm thinking. And it's key in a sense that I don't need to check on him to say, hey, how are things going? What's going on here? Like in SEALs, like in our military, the minute you look to your left or right, you leave yourself exposed, not only yourself, but your entire team. And so that's kind of this concept of like, I'm going this way and I know my back's covered because he's got it. And so I trust him that much. I trust him with my life in a sense that any, uh, any decision he makes, I support it 110%. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to be there to support it because I know he's looking out for the best interest of not only for myself, but our entire team. What has he demonstrated to you where you have that trust? You know, it's funny. Him and I have gone through hell together, honestly. Um, when you're in this research world, uh, it can be challenging. Right? And there's been times where people have come after me. There's been times that people have gone after him. And when you have people there, when what I say shit hits the fan, uh, the people that are left, those are the ones that you know are, are the real deal. And him and I have constantly gone through trials and tribulations. And at the end of the day, when the smoke clears, he's always there and I've always been there. 
And so I think that's one of the big things is everyone, it doesn't matter who you are. There will be times in business, there will be times in your relationships that stuff might won't go right. You have trials and tribulations and who's left standing afterwards, those are the people who I want to go to war with. And that's one of the things that we've constantly faced throughout our entire career and time together is he's always there and I've always been there. Which brings us to the now and a lot of your guys' research now is on the benefits of the ketogenic diet. Could you give a real simple, short, concise overview on, on what a ketogenic diet is and ketosis? Not to bore you, because I know you probably answered that question 10,000 times. No worries. No. So, I mean, a lot of people have heard of the Atkins diet. I think that's very familiar for people to, to resonate with. But in short, it is a higher fat, moderate protein, lower carbohydrate diet that basically places your body in a state of ketosis, where you're utilizing fat and ketones as fuel, and you're less reliant on carbohydrates sugar and glucose. And so that's really the, the basic definition is, is this unique metabolic state that puts you in a state where your body's producing these ketones from breaking down fat at such a rapid rate because your diet's extremely low in carbohydrates um, and sugar. I've been doing intermittent fasting and going on probably three and a half, four years now. That kind of how before carbohydrates looking at evolutionary psychology this is our body was kind of it created these ketones because of we had to fast is that correct yep absolutely and then a lot of the guys that coach at the high school uh they unfortunately this is something we're working on this is part of the reason i have the podcast but they're not eating they're not eating a lot of the guys who come to practice you know practice starts at two and they haven't eaten yet in the day and one of the things i was really excited to have you on how can I teach them that fasting, while as a growing athlete, may not be the most beneficial thing? What can I do to say that, hey, you know, your body might respond to this in a somewhat positive way as well? What is, what's your take on that? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of intermittent fasting. I think I think it's a great tool, a great strategy for anyone looking to optimize his body composition. But in the same token, like you mentioned, you won't die, right? If you go eight to ten hours, as much as people think, you know, oh, man, I'm I'm losing it, I'm feeling tired. Like your body's okay. Trust me, our bodies evolutionary have gone days without eating. There are people who fast for several days. But what I would say is if at all possible, if it is possible, especially the athletes, to if you aren't doing intermittent fasting purposefully, eating calories around the training or workout period would be beneficial. Like if you're gonna fast, try and fast away from the workout, or even if you can't or you don't have access to food, I would say even some getting in protein shake or some branched chain amino acids can help, especially to a, a growing uh, athlete, someone who's been coming. It's not absolutely necessary, but th those are small things that can help and they're not expensive at all. And then BCAAs, that those keep us in ketosis, is that correct? Yeah, so it depends. As long as they don't have a ton of sugar or carbohydrates in them, like it's perfectly fine to have, especially prior to a workout. And then what would you recommend? What would be your top brand for BCAAs? There's so many. I think the one, Cyvation has one that tastes really good. Uh, those are ones that I use, but I, you can literally get any of them. What you're looking for is a leucine content of about two to three grams per serving. So that's the, that's the only thing I'm looking for. Is there's probably a ton of cheaper ones on Amazon or wherever, but two to three grams of leucine per serving is what you really want to do to optimize those adaptations. And then if I haven't eaten all day, and then I have some easy carbs, like a bag of chips or something, how is my body going to respond to that? 
Am I just going to get hungrier after, or what's going to happen? How's our body going to respond if it's it's been in a fasted state? Then we eat some hot chips or something, and and that's it. Yeah, it certainly could. So the way I like to explain it is like a roller coaster, right? So you, imagine you being on a flat ground, you're you're in this fasting period, and then all of a sudden, like I used to go to, I think it's at Six Flags, this ride called King to Ka, and it was like one of the highest roller coasters in the world. And so imagine now you eat cookies or a bag of chips, and boom, it shoots you up. That's what's happening to your glucose and insulin. It is boom, it's getting shot up this roller coaster, and then what happens when it's at the very top? Well, what goes up? must come down, right? So it goes all the way up and then boom, it crashes and you kind of go hypoglycemic, which your glucose comes down and then that's when people start reporting feeling hangry and they get all moody and upset and stuff. Like that's the roller coaster of just having these fast digesting carbohydrates that are, especially ones that are from processed foods like chips and cookies and crackers and all that stuff. And then can you define hypoglycemic? Yeah, so basically uh, hypoglycemia just means your, your glucose going below what its baseline was. So if your baseline was 80, and the normal range is say 80 to 100, and all of a sudden you have a bag of chips, and it shoots up to 150, 170 points. And then all of a sudden you release a ton of insulin to because your body goes, whoa, there's a lot of sugar in here, a lot of carbohydrates. Let's get that out of the bloodstream. Boom, it releases insulin to try and shuttle that glucose into the cells. And and then sometimes it overshoots on the amount of insulin that it released. And then all of a sudden you see your glucose drop, 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 drop. And it's like in the 70s. And now you're hypoglycemic or 60s and you're hypoglycemic, you're hangry and you're like, I'm so hungry. I got to go run and grab some other cookie or some other granola bar or something like that. And then max five to seven dollar range. What if you had five, let's say you had seven dollars and you had to get something to eat. You haven't eaten all day. You want to stay in ketosis. What would that be? Tough question. So if I just had five dollars and I want I had to get something in to eat, and are you saying to keep, stay ketogenic or to just in general for an athlete? Let's go in general first, and then let's go. Well, the reason I say, well, actually, let's go ketogenic because I'm what I'm thinking is if if these guys are already in a fasted state, that their body is probably in some level of ketosis. So why don't we we stay with that with ketogenic? Yeah, I would say it's easy. I mean. You can easily eat quote unquote fast food meals for fairly cheap that are ketogenic, right? Is that ideal? Absolutely not. Um, what I would say is you can literally, if you planned it out for the week and say you had $25, I could say you can make food for the week with $25 by cooking your own food, getting some ground beef, getting some chicken, planning it out, putting it in some Tupperware, and you could still be very low on the, on the budget side. But if I just had $5 in the moment and I would go to a sandwich place and just get a lettuce wrap and make sure you're getting some high quality meat, go to a burger joint and get something without the bun, and just making sure you're getting in a high quality source of, of meat, you're getting in some fats and you're not having a ton of carbohydrates with that because what happens is, and I, I, I know this because I, all my teammates did it, we would get a lunch budget and they'd hand us 10 bucks and go, hey, go get some food for the game and get some snacks and guys would load, they'd grab like some burrito from the, the gas station, some candy and like they felt like crap and they would run to the bathroom midway, middle of the game. And so I would say there are possibilities, just cut out the carbs, grab something that's high quality, even like beef jerky, right? Something as simple as that is good to get into your system. It's not super heavy, especially if you have a workout after. Love it. And then I recommend hard-boiled eggs a lot and tuna. 
Love it. Those are great. And even they're making now, um, one of the things I do even when I'm on the go is like the chicken. You can get like canned chicken and mix it up and just do some of that. I, I would do it with tuna. For some reason, I just I just don't like tuna. So I, I'm a more of a chicken guy. So you can do the same thing with chicken. And then I know I've done a lot of research over the years looking at Dom D'Agostino. And he's, he's a huge, he's put the sardines on the map. He's a big proponent of them. I can't get there, but I, they're really beneficial. Yeah, whoever the founders are of Wild Planet, man, they, I hope he's getting a cut. Okay, and then staying in the football world here, uh, football is a combat sport, head trauma. Uh, this has gotten a lot of attention over the last few years. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how uh, being in ketosis can help with head trauma and CTE and traumatic brain injury? Oh, for sure. And I think the data on it is pretty clear, at least from the animal models that we've done, um, and even some preliminary human models. And the scary thing about it is, like, football's, like we were talking about, football's one of the biggest sports, right? And a lot of times, people don't think about head trauma on the day-to-day. -day. They think about it as, oh, I ran across the middle and some linebacker clobbered me, and now I have head trauma. Like, yeah, you definitely have head trauma after that. But also, a lineman who's going through practice every single day and having repeated hits and contacts, those are what we call micro trauma. As much as you're like, oh, I'm fine, I'm good, that stuff accumulates over time. And so you look at these people and you're like, how when they do an NFL analysis, when they take these four people who have passed away that played NFL, how do 116 out of 117 brains have signs of CTE? Not every single one of them was a highlight on ESPN with someone getting clobbered. Those were people that were just everyday getting after it, taking hits in practice, taking hits in games, and all of that adds. And one of the things that we know is even after these micro traumas is our brain becomes temporarily insulin resistant. And that can last for several hours to several weeks after the, the impact, depending upon its severity. And so what happens, and this is one of the biggest things that I think is insane about our current quote unquote treatments or our, our lack of, of knowledge in this area is Someone takes a big hit or people come off the field and they go over to the sideline, what do they do? They slug down Gatorade or something that's got a ton of sugar and what happens, right? Their brain, if their brain is temporarily insulin resistant and can't take up and utilize that fuel source, it is like starvation in the face of plenty. Providing your body with plenty of fuel but your brain just can't take it up and utilize. So what happens over time after this happening over and over and over again without providing it a fuel source that it can actually utilize, cells start to die. You start to see complications and we wonder why four, five, six years after people are done playing, they start to see some of these complications. Well, those cells were dying 10 years before. We just never addressed it. And then if you were on the sideline, would you ideally, would you want something other additionally besides water instead of Gatorade for a guy who says coming off the field after taking a hit or just, you know, the consistent small trauma that you're talking about? Yeah, I can't say. I, there's a lot of research that needs to be done on this, and there's not much that have done, been done to humans. But the way I always tell people this, if it were me and my dad were standing on the sideline and, and he had capabilities and I was coming off of taking some of the hits that I used to take in high school, I would hope that he would have some sort of exogenous ketone or some quick digesting fat source for my body if I'm not on a ketogenic diet. Some sort of exogenous ketones I think could have a huge opportunity to pass the blood brain barrier be taken up and provide a fuel source for the brain and that's been demonstrated in animal 
models over and over and over again following head trauma is that if they have if they have availability to that fuel source you can potentially prevent a lot of that um, starvation from happening and a lot of that trauma that happens after the math so if it were me I would hope that my dad had some sort of fuel source that could readily be taken up and utilized and exogenous ketones uh, very intrigued so I've been uh, taking Keto Force, big fan of that for a shoot. And I've been consistently a couple years and love to talk a little bit about exogenous ketones. And I guess in the broader scheme of things, in terms of all these benefits of our body burning fat and fuel and being in ketosis, is, are the benefits, is it really about how much time per day my body is in ketosis? And like this is an example I consistently go through for myself is if I take some exogenous ketones, should I not... If I'm out, you know, on the field or at work, should I not eat something that I fear will get me out of ketosis because that will take away the benefit of the exogenous ketones? Is, is it about staying in ketosis for as long as possible or am I getting the benefits because I put myself into ketosis for a short period of time? But I'd love to learn more about the benefits of ketosis. Is it, do they connect with how long I'm in ketosis and exogenous ketones and how that all works? Yeah, well, I certainly think there are adaptations that continue to play, take place the longer you're in it. Um, there are adaptations that take place 6 or 12 months while you're in a state of ketosis. And that's why I like to use the term ketogenic lifestyle rather than ketogenic diet. Because people look at diet as temporary. I like to look at it as a ketogenic lifestyle. And one of the challenges, though, is something you brought up is, well, if I'm an athlete and I'm in the middle of the season, I don't have time to adapt, take two weeks or whatever to adapt and implement a ketogenic diet. And that's actually something I probably wouldn't recommend is not starting it directly in the middle of your season because it can actually affect performance negatively when you're first adapting, right? You're switching your body to utilizing an entirely new fuel source and that's something that takes time. It takes time to do that. So I would recommend doing it in the off season. But like you mentioned, imagine something happens. Um, you do see benefits from ketone, exogenous ketones themselves. So they have unique properties of and within themselves. But I do think it's not an either or, like an either the ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones. I think there's immense synergy amongst the two where exogenous ketones can be looked at as a tool that can then be utilized in conjunction with the ketogenic diet to formulate this ketogenic lifestyle along with things like intermittent fasting and all different kinds of other things that help with that lifestyle. And then just so our audience is fully in the mix here, what is an exogenous ketone? Yeah, so when we're talking about a ketogenic diet, your body produces ketones endogenously. Endo means inside, so your body's producing that from the fat you're eating or the body fat on your body. Exogenous ketones are supplemental ketones, so exo meaning outside of the body. So that means you're taking it in. There's Right now, there's two different kinds of exogenous ketones. There's exogenous ketone salts, which are readily available on the market, and they're sold often all the time right now. I think there's like 50 brands now that have exogenous ketone salts. And then there's exogenous ketone esters, and those are very expensive. They taste like vodka that's been sitting on your grandfather's shelf for the last 75 years and they're brutal to put down but they're they're just slightly different and so they're like the elite of elite endurance athletes are some of them are using and choking down some of these esters but for 99 percent of the other people that are consuming exogenous ketones it's happening via exogenous ketone salts which basically just means a ketone body bound to sodium, magnesium, calcium, 
or calcium, and they're basically just electrolytes. So it's bound to an electrolyte to make it into a salt form that you can then pour into a drink, shake it up, and drink it. And then I don't, I don't know if it's current, but at one point you were a, a brand ambassador or as someone who had credibility to prove it in that company, that's a salt, correct? Yeah, prove it utilizes the salt. And one of the things I like about what they've done is we've spoken at a lot of their events. So they've asked us to give presentations on some of our data with ketogenic diets and uh, exogenous ketones. But I like that they're doing a lot of the research in this realm. They just published some research in firefighters and that those populations are doing some stuff in kids to see if there's an application there. I'm a big fan of any company that is willing to invest in research and find legitimately what's going on. And I think they've done an exceptional job at, at still trying to figure out what's the best way to, to use exogenous ketones, what's the best way not to use exogenous ketones, and what's the best applications for them. And I think that's really, really unique. Their product tastes really good. And are you familiar with Keto Force? Uh, yes. I, is that the liquid or do they have a salt as well? Liquid. So where I was going with that, that's, I mean, I'm guessing just by the taste, that's an ester, correct? Well, that's actually, so what, the, the reason why it's a liquid is because I believe Patrick Arnold put BHB potassium in there as well. And potassium is only available as a liquid. So, uh, because it's so hygroscopic, which in that just means it attracts a lot of water. So if you've ever seen a powder or something clump up, it's because it's hygroscopic. So that's why you don't see BHB potassium in any of the salt formulation, like the, the powdered formulation. But Patrick made a liquid form that has BHB potassium, and then the, I don't know what else is in there, but uh, that's why it's a liquid. So you can just kind of take a, a shot of that. But those are still uh, technically ketone salts. Okay. And then if I take a shot of that, or if I have one of my players take a shot of that, is the goal to to maximize the benefit of that shot is the goal to refrain from anything that will take me out of ketosis for as long as possible? I would say it depends on the goal. Like if it's like, hey, they just took a brutal hit, then yeah, I would recommend the goal would be to how do you elevate ketones safely? So in that way, how do you elevate them to a level that the brain senses can then take up, utilize, absorb, and then provide the fuel source to help provide that neuroprotective effect that we know the ketones have. Love it. And then president of API, which is a performance facility in Tampa, and what you were talking about when we were kind of doing our podcast prep is that you have a number of professional athletes go down there, high-level executives. Um, you mentioned maybe some high-level tactical athletes. And my question to you is if you were the head of human performance for a football team and you had they had complete trust in you and you had free reign, unlimited resources – just in terms of like a nutrition, what would you do? What would that look like day before a game, game day, on the field, like in the game, and then let's say morning after? Yeah, so uh, this is a really good question. And so theoretically, I'd have my athletes adapted, keto adapted to some level, not on a really strict look like strict ketogenic diet they'd be low carb fat adapted um and then i would approach them with what we call targeted ketogenic which basically just means they're incorporating carbohydrates in around their workouts these guys especially if they're young would likely be burning through a ton of calories and their metabolisms are still going a mile a minute and they're burning through it so i would put them on a targeted ketogenic approach and 
uh, really under the assault fact, not only that the improvements in body composition, but really protecting that brain. And, and that's one of the big things that I look at. Going back now, I'm like, my team probably looks at me and goes, yeah, I can see there's a lot of loose screws there. Uh, a lot of that's probably due to, huh. I was the guy with 18 pounds of pasta before my game, and then afterwards go pound down some sweetest fish because I didn't know any better. And so, like, I was one of those guys who probably had a lot of that long-term brain injury. But if I had unlimited resources, I would say that, put them on a targeted ketogenic approach. If I had to outfit my locker room, I would have a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber. I think that's enormous. I would have them do it both before and after the exit of the game. I'd have exogenous ketones in the locker room and on the sideline. I, and I might even have like some type of infusion where they're getting sort of infusions of different vitamins, minerals, um, hydration, both before and after, depending upon who needed it. And those would be some of the tools that I would utilize to really try and optimize and maximize performance and protect my athletes. And I think that's one of the things that we as a society forget about because we want to watch football on Sunday and we want to see all these amazing big hits and we want to see all these amazing catches and throws. And then what happens is these guys are in so much pain, so much they're under so much pressure that they all they, they opt for using some type of illegal substance and then we ridicule them. And I'm like, well, how fair is it? Because if that guy then didn't play on Sunday, everyone would ridicule him and be like, you're a wimp, blah, 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 blah. I, I need you on my fantasy team. What are you doing? And so what does he do? He goes and takes something so that he can play on Sunday, gets caught, and then we ridicule him again. And I'm like, why aren't we proposing alternative strategies for these individuals and making sure we're looking after their protection as well as their performance and stop looking at them as as like animals inside of a circus and then go rather than say, hey, let's make sure not only is he here to play this year, but I can then watch him in five years and he's still able to perform. And that's something that I look forward to and hope that a lot of these ideas and, and concept that I think some teams are starting to implement uh, can actually take place and really start protecting the health and longevity of some of these athletes. And then in terms of the infusion that you said you would have on the side, would that be a drink? Well, I would do like IV infusion in the game. Like I would do like after the game because they, but they, you burn through so much. And that's part of, I think it's one of the reasons why you get so sore the next day is I would literally just have an IV infusion and infuse back vitamins, minerals, and just get them rehydrated after the game and just say, hey, listen, quick five minutes and, and make sure these guys are, are taking care of antioxidants are in their their body and they're, uh, they're hopefully recovering. And the benefits of the hyperbaric chamber would be what? So one of the things, and Dom's actually a huge proponent of this, and if you look at, not to go too technical on the science piece, but you look at what happens when you have a lot of this injury and brain trauma, is your body produces something known as reactive oxygen species. And these reactive oxygen species basically go around and amounts, imagine them like a pinball, right? They're bouncing around, hitting other cells of the body and they're causing disruption. And the other cells of the bodies then start to get hampered and, and start to get some trauma themselves. And when you have a ton of reaction of oxygen species, it can lead to a lot of complications. Well, hyperbaric oxygen therapy in the right dose has been shown to lower that reactive oxygen species. So it's basically inhibiting that reaction species from bouncing around and causing disruption to the other cells of your body. High-level athlete coming to your facility who's not that familiar with keto or ketosis, what's the number one 
when you're communicating and teaching to them, number one kind of aha moment that usually works and like, this helps your performance, this this helps protect you. What works for you in terms of how you communicate and teach to them on, on why they should try this out? Yeah, we're, we're very fortunate to have an amazing team here, uh, not only from our performance coaches, but uh, our dietitian is very supportive of it. So whenever he's talking to them, you know, one of the things I talk about, and we're actually creating this initiative right now to try and push further into the NFL, because I promise you this, better helmets won't save our athletes. Mm. We're going to have to root cause of the issue. And as much time, energy, and effort that the NFL or whatever sport wants to invest into trying to make a better helmet, the, the marginal difference that that will make is virtually useless. So why don't we start looking at the root cause of the issue, which is the brain starving for, your, for a fuel source and we aren't providing it for it. And so one of the things we do is we have a lot of cognitive tests that you can detect very minute differences. And so we do all types of different types of brain tests and eye tracking tests that can really detect some type of, of uh, problem before someone would ever really even notice it. So with athletes or individuals, say they go play a game on Sunday and they come in on Monday and we have their baseline and then we bring them back in again after a game and look at some of the cognitive tests, we can see a pretty drastic difference if they took us, if they took some shots to the head on Sunday and then saying, hey, what if let's try and apply some of these interventions and at very worst, let's just see what happens on Tuesday. And oftentimes these individuals will come back and they'll see a world of a difference and be like, you know what, I just need to start incorporating this and take care of my body to make sure I have a life after the game. And then could you explain a little bit, you, you mentioned, so the issue is in hitting itself, but you said it's also in, okay, the hit occurs, and then what's the connection between that and then the brain starving for a fuel source? Yeah, so uh, basically what happens is whether you take a big hit or whether you're an offensive lineman and you're taking a lot of these micro trauma hits to the brain, the brain's getting rattled around, right? And it's causing a lot of these reactive oxygen species, a lot of inflammation, and both of those and several other factors contribute to the brain becoming temporarily insulin resistant. So you have your brain starving for a fuel source, and yet the glucose or carbohydrates that you're providing cannot be pushed in or aren't effectively being taken up and utilized by the brain. And so over and over, your brain needs a lot of this energy, especially after this trauma to it. It's unable to get there because your brain, the gate's closed, so to speak. And so the, the fuel source isn't being taken up. And then in terms of performance, in my limited knowledge, the brain why it's a very low percentage of our body weight, it takes 20% of our energy to keep fueling. So if our brain becomes insulin resistant, is that gonna lower energy levels? It can, it absolutely can. You're not seeing the, the proper fuel being taken up and utilized, and it can certainly lower energy. And that's why you look at these guys after a game or after they've taken a big hit, obviously their bodies have been through a lot, right? They, they're sore as heck and, and they've gone through a lot, but a lot of them are lethargic for several days and they gotta wake up on Friday, Saturday, and some Sunday and, and get ready for their next game. And it's like, well, you're not taking up and utilizing, like you said, your brain takes up a large amount of the fuel. It needs to be provided with the fuel source that it effectively needs to operate at maximal capacity. And if the brain is insulin resistant, then by putting the body into ketosis, that benefits how? So uh, even short term, if you're providing it with a guy or something to provide 
that state of ketosis, you're override like so the way that glucose and carbohydrates are taken up into the brain are different transporters than the way ketones are taken up into the brain. And so imagine it like one highway is closed, but the other highway is wide open. The challenge is 99% of the time, the highway that's wide open has zero cars on it because we're slugging down Gatorade and sugar and carbohydrates on the sideline and no ketones are being passed on into the brain, but it's there. In fact, there is actually data that shows that after a trauma to the brain, not only is the highway there, but there's more highways. Our body recognizes it and goes, hey, this is the pathway that we need to take to provide the fuel source for the brain because this highway is closed. And so the brain starts opening up new highways and it builds more transporters that ketone utilize. They're called MCT transporters. It builds more of these transporters that ketones can be readily taken up and utilized. We just don't provide the brain that fuel source. And so it's our goal to figure out ways to optimize that process and provide it with the fuel source that it needs to be able to take it up and utilize it and use those highways that are open following the head trauma. And then do you know any professional teams or college teams that are bringing us into their, their training? I do. Unfortunately, I can't say some that are, but I can say this. There are some, we work very closely, not only with NFL athletes, we work a lot with NHL athletes, Mm. a multitude of sports, but there are athletes who behind the scenes on their own opt for this and their strength coaches and nutritionists are, are supporters of it, but they're just very careful of publicizing it because technically they have to be very careful about banned substances and things being looked at. And the question becomes like, this is a really unique fuel source and they're seeing incredible benefits from it. There's athletes and individuals and teams that we've worked with uh, that have really been incorporating some of these strategies, I'd say for the last three years. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the reasons I love being a part of the football industry is it's ultra competitive and it's men coming together to really dedicate their life to the mission. So it's really surprising where they're uh, they're doing anything and everything to get a competitive edge that it's not become more prevalent. It really needs to be. And I think if you look at the NFL teams, we're dealing with a lot of things going on right now in the NFL, but you look at it and it's really going to have to start with the owners. And that's one of the things you look at some of the owners who are more progressive of making sure they're taking care of their athletes because it's going to take a long time. And I'm not, by no means are we stopping or slowing down or giving up, but to get it full blown through the NFL, you're going to need to make a lot of noise in order for them to really take recognition and go, all right, well, let's stop focusing on trying to put two more inches of padding inside of a helmet. Let's opt for something that's more feasible or, or something that's actually more readily available that can make a large difference. And so getting to the owners is something that we're working on and trying to get more and more coaches and nutritionists on board to say, wow, this is really something we should be looking at. The risk to reward is is ridiculous. And like, there's no harm, there would be no harm in individuals doing this. So why aren't we at least looking into it or, or putting more resources towards the research that needs to be done in these areas for some of these athletes? Uh, that's one of the big initiatives we're trying to take. And then what's the number one quantitative measure you can do to measure the results of an athlete going into hyperbaric chamber after a game, taking exogenous ketones after a game, and being on a keto-adapted diet compared to an athlete who's not doing those things. How would you be able, NFL owner said, hey, show me the difference here. What would you show them? Yeah, so a lot of it would be, we have a a series of different uh, cognitive tests and capabilities that we do in our laboratory. 
where not only can we look at motor reaction time, literally having things pop up on a screen and then you have to react and hit it, really get a baseline assessment. Like prior to you going into the season, before you even start training camp, let's get a baseline. Have them do the motor component and then we have one that literally just tracks eye movement in a sense that it tracks, it's such a high-speed camera that it's tracking movement of your eyes of like what the, another human eye couldn't detect. And so your tracking capability, we see in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases and conditions that that can be impaired and you can track the smallest minute differences on some of our machines and technology and then applying these interventions you can see radical differences even with like exogenous ketones within minutes of someone doing this and retesting them you can see some of these differences start to take place in some of their cognitive capabilities and that's powerful that is powerful man that's exciting a couple of quick things here in terms of my own personal diet nutritional journey here i'd love to get your take on so i've been on my own journey of recognizing the importance of nutrition probably 10 plus years now and one of the things that i've done recently is have you ever heard of the company viome yeah they do a gut test now right and they do they have probiotics and yes so what they do is they look at your your gut bacteria and they i'm a huge i'm a big believer in terms of diet of customizing and we're all different but it inspects our gut bacteria and then it provides a recommendation list of what what works well and uh, what foods we should stay away from and like so big thing for me is it said foods I, I need to stay away from was like stevia which was a sweetener that I used a lot because I thought it was it was a really good replacement for you know all the other sweeteners and sugars out there but so my question is how does being in ketosis do you know how that affects our gut biome Really great question. There's a lot that needs to be done in this area, but there's some thoughts and hypotheses that I have, but a lot of it, because a lot of times people go, well, you need a ton of fiber, you need a lot of these legumes and, and carbohydrates to, to be able to effectively feed the gut microbiome effect. I think when you're in a state of ketosis, the, the situation radically changes. And there's mm. people that, like I said, we have case reports on people with Crohn and people that are like they have the most amount of inflammation in their in their gut and seeing amazing differences by lowering some of that inflammation. So you can bet that's going to have a beneficial effect on the gut microbiome and some of those bacteria that are in there. One of my hypotheses is this. You look at a well-formulated ketogenic diet, you look at the production of ketones themselves. Ketones are like the scientific terminology, beta-hydroxybutyrate or BHB is one of the main ketone bodies. The main thing that feeds the good bacteria, the good bacteria in your stomach is butyrate. It's what's produced, it's what's when, when bacteria are fermenting their foods. Butyrate has a ton of amazing properties. It's very difficult to supplement it with on its own because it's, it'll smell up your entire house. It's very gross. Uh, the only way to do it is in capsule form, but it's not very popular and, and very and there's just very limited data on it. But if you look at beta-hydroxybutyrate, again, a ketone body that's naturally produced when you're on a ketogenic diet, there's a butyrate component to that, a butyrate backbone. And so potentially, maybe that's feeding and helping foster some of the good flora and good bacteria inside of a gut, uh, inside of your gut when you're on a ketogenic diet. I think I just think the equation completely changes because you're in such a unique metabolic state. And that's something that we definitely need to do more research on. Of how do we really contextualize a well-formulated ketogenic diet and what that means in context of good gut microbiome? Yeah, and it's something I'm kind of navigating through myself because it, it, 
doing that volume test, I highly recommend it just because it's just really amazing in terms of being able, it gives you a list of what foods work really well and what foods don't. And my energy levels have increased and I, I haven't had any drop in energy that, that sometimes occurred in the past. But with some of his recommendations for me are like, oh, well, you got to eat a lot of brown rice and oats. These are great for you. So it's something I'm kind of navigating in terms of what I want to be in ketosis. How can I go about this? Or should I, should I do that? You know, so just kind of own talking in my head here. I love that you're doing that. I think it's an important piece for anyone is self-experimentation, kind of like this concept of an elimination diet, so to speak, where you slowly start pulling out or reintroducing some foods and see how your body handles and responds to them. I think self-quantification and experimentation is one of the most powerful pieces because I might eat a certain way. I might eat a Cobb salad every day and be completely fine, but someone else eats it and they're, they get some sort of trigger inflammation and they don't realize that it takes them a while to realize, well, they don't respond well to blue cheese seems to be a trigger for them. And so cutting out blue cheese would likely probably be beneficial for them long term. So just because it works for your friend or works for your neighbor doesn't mean it's going to work the exact same way for you. That's why I like this concept of self-experimentation and finding out what foods work best for you and then working based around that. And then about a self-experimentation, a nutritional strategy that I could not, I had a very difficult time getting through it is, I'm guessing you're familiar with Dr. Rhonda Patrick, who's a big fan of ketosis and ketones and uh, the benefits of those. Are, are you familiar with Dr. Rhonda Patrick? So as I mentioned, I've done intermittent fasting for a long time. And what I would do is I'd, you know, do the kind of the standard where I would have the coffee mixed with the fat in the morning, and then I wouldn't eat till later in the day. And then what Dr. Rhonda Patrick talked about was that there was a difference between intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating in that our liver still processes stuff, still processes the coffee, the caffeine, and the fat. I might be butchering this, but um, compared to instead of just eating in an eight-hour span and then having your coffee and fat, what she recommends is... If you're going to eat eight, nine hour window, don't have anything outside that eight, nine hour window other than water. And I was wondering what your take is on the difference between intermittent fasting and time restricted eating. Absolutely. And I think it all is in context of what's the goal. And I think Rhonda's spot on in some capacity in a sense that if you're really looking to for the autophagy component of fasting. And autophagy basically just means your cells are cleaning themselves out, right? You have cells that come in and they eat up all the debris and clean out all the junk that's built up inside of our bodies. If you're really looking for the autophagy, it likely would be better by just having water outside of that fasting. If you're looking for the general, just general benefits of intermittent fasting, you're eating less calories, you're trying to optimize body composition. The way I look at it, it's like this. Pure fat, there's data showing that you can like fat fat so to speak, where you're literally, like you said, having coffee and some fat or even endogenous ketones. To me, that doesn't necessarily break the traditional fast because you're not elevating insulin, you're not elevating glucose, you're still in a state of ketosis. But if that's what allows someone to make it more sustainable, I'm all for it. But what she's talking about is more of like the autophagy component. Like people will do these extended fasts solely for the concept of like they want some of that cell cleaning and stuff like that. I still think you get that with intermittent fasting, with even if you have some coffee with that, you do get that. It's just, are you accelerating it faster or are you trying to do it over the course of maybe 
maybe a month, whereas this is accomplishing it in a couple of days of some different types of fasting where you're just having water. So I think that I don't think either one's right or wrong. I think it's really what's the goal and what allows it to really be optimized or maximized. And then in terms of the the coffee mixed with the fat, sometimes I feel like if I have an a, additional cup more than normal, then I feel like it causes some kind of uh, some inflammation in my body. And what I'm wondering is there do different fat sources, coconut oil, ghee, butter, different coffees, do those all have a varying effect in terms of how our body's going to respond to respond to respond to them? Oh, for sure. There's definitely differences amongst coffee sources themselves. Like if you're at a hotel and you get coffee versus if you go to like a nice upstanding place and have like legit coffee, I can determine the difference even myself. And I'm not a huge coffee drinker in that regard. But the source of butter, the source of ghee, the source of coconut oil, those could all play an impact as well. And the devil's in the dose, right? If I'm one of the people that like I'm still at a point where I don't, I can't even tolerate that much MCT. Like I can definitely tolerate more than I could, but if people overdo it on MCT or even coconut oil or even butter uh, or ghee for that matter, if you overdo it, not only are you adding a pretty healthy dose of calories at that point, but your stomach might feel it and you'll be running to the bathroom a lot sooner than you had hoped for. And in this whole industry, what are you most excited about with it right now, where it's heading? I'm more excited about the way, the research that's coming out in general. Like I think the ability to, this conversation, I'm glad that it's back. This isn't something that's new. It's something that's been around since the 1900s or even beforehand when we were looking at ketogenic diets for epilepsy. But we had Ansel Keys and some complications come around in the 1950s, which basically recommended, hey, we got to cut fat out. And it kind of took us by storm, but I think we're, we're recovered from it. And I think we're it's back. And one of the things that I want to make sure is how do we protect this conversation now? And I think one of the things that excites me the most is there's so many amazing researchers, thought leaders, influencers who are jumping on board embarking on this and sharing it so that way more and more people are doing it and when you have an army of so many people experiencing it like that's when it becomes real it's not just a hey i tried this and it worked for me but like don't really know it's like there are so many people and with the social media age it's being shared so many times that you see people from lebron to kim kardashian and the Halle Berry and all these people who have embarked on sort of this lifestyle at one point or another in their in their life. And that's powerful. And you're seeing so many people that are going through transformations. Those are powerful and that's gonna help drive the research forward and say, all right, well, we know it's beneficial for body composition, but really the, let's take a deep dive into this. And there's friends and colleagues of mine that are now looking at this for cancer, not only in humans, but in animals. Um, what about Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, like I said, traumatic brain injury, like all these different applications it's driving that forward and that's really what excites me love it well i want to give you a couple questions here to wrap up rapid fire and answer in one word or one sentence all right i appreciate your time here ryan most interesting person you have met in your life if it's a family member probably my grandfather if not it's either going to be jacob or tony robbins what personal limits are you currently stretching i'd say it's a really good question I'd say patience. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm working on is figuring out how to patience is with my team, with my dog, with myself, with family, patience with everything. And what skill have you gotten better at in the last six months? I'd say the skill of, of honing in on perspective. I think I've worked on, on figuring out kind of through gratitude and all these different things is 
perspective matters and honing in on that even the small things that people can make develop into huge things they're small in the grand scheme of things We're, i'm just grateful that i have opportunities like this to share our message with the world and super grateful that i just get to wake up each day so just having that perspective changes everything perspective matters love it and then you don't need to answer this in, in a word or a sentence but Final question, if you were giving some words of wisdom to a 17, 18, 19 year old who comes from absolutely nothing yet has high ambitions to leave an impact on the world, what would you say to them and would you say anything about nutrition and the ketogenic diet in your words of wisdom? You know, honestly, I would tell them the key is this, find a mentor or mentors that are will take you under their wing, like someone like yourself, that will take someone under their wing and, and provide them, not even directly, but indirectly by them looking up and seeing what you're doing and be around them. Like just be in their vicinity. You don't have to be talking to them, but learn, understand from them. It's been a game changer in my life. I'm only where I am because of the people around me um, and the mentors and friends and family that I've had in my life. And I'm extremely grateful for that. And the other thing to keep in mind is this, perspective matters. I have this saying, make positivity louder. We live in such an age now. And a lot of times, even with youth, they can get wrapped up in all the negative drama and crap that's going on in the world. And if you let that into your life, it'll consume you. And so instead, find the great things that are happening, find the individuals like yourself, find the people who are doing amazing things in the world and focus on them, surround yourself with them. And as difficult as it might be, get the other people out of your life, even if it means severing some relationships, if it's going to be beneficial for you in the long term, do it because that'll make the world of a difference and allow you to grow and develop into the person that you really want to become versus getting dragged down a route or an alley that you'll look back in 10, 20, 30 years from now and say, damn, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And regret, my friends, is the number one thing that you never want to have in life. If you ever want to know what regret is like, go to a senior center home and you'll hear all of them go, you know, I wish I would have. You have an opportunity right now to, to be in a position where you can change your outcome right now. And so it, it ultimately comes down to decisions you make today. Love it. Dr. Ryan Lowry, President, Applied Performance Institute, founder of ketogenic.com. Uh, I highly recommend that you check out his book, The Ketogenic Bible. And Mr. Lowry, where is the best way? You say you and your team are putting out a ton of high-value content. Where is the best way for audience to connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, anything sports or research related, it's going to be the ASPI, V-A-S-P-I.com. Anything keto related, we have ketogenic.com on Instagram. We are ketogenic.com. And then personally, if I can be of any resource or help, I'm on Instagram. I respond as much as I can at Ryan P. Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Dr. Ryan Lowry on Facebook. And our goal is really just to, like you said, put out as much value and content and information as possible and really just lend a helping hand.